Today, some extraordinary people sharing a bit of travel advice, insights, and experiences take us to some surprising places. Audrey Murray's debut book, Open Mic Night in Moscow, takes us on a humorous journey as a solo traveler inside the republics of the former Soviet Union. This particular hostel was really close to this insane asylum. The Camino de Santiago draws the faithful and the curious to northern Spain, and we explore with Richard Keltner St. James' final journey along this popular pilgrimage route. Singer-songwriter Kendall Gary has taken her opera training to the world of country music, but building cross-cultural bridges is nothing new for her. The fact that I've been able and I've been fortunate enough to live and travel the world has been awesome. Dr. Jeff Werber takes care of the pets of some of Hollywood's best-known celebrities and shares some sage advice on traveling with our furry companions. And we'll visit southeastern Utah and Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley on World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Later in the hour, the Camino de Santiago draws the faithful and the curious to northern Spain, Portugal, and France to explore the life and times of St. James. Adventurous Richard Keltner has taken this popular pilgrimage many times and shares his advice to help you get the most from this moving experience. Singer-songwriter Kendall Gary has taken her opera training to the world of country music, but building cross-cultural bridges is nothing new for her. Now this Texan is shaking up the country music world, bringing her unique style to audiences at home and abroad. Celebrity veterinarian and television host Dr. Jeff Werber has made it his mission to strengthen the ties that binds pets and their human parents. Dr. Jeff offers some sage advice on traveling stress-free with our furry companions. Plus, we'll visit Moab in southeastern Utah and Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley along the way. But first, Bizarre is one way to describe some of the experiences recounted in Audrey Murray's debut book, Open Mic Night in Moscow. This comedian, now first-time writer, takes us on a wild and wacky journey inside the republics of the former Soviet Union as a solo traveler, navigating with humor and curiosity the tensions of a region trying to escape its past. I love the title of your book, Open Mic Night in Moscow, and other stories from my search for black markets, Soviet architecture, and emotionally unavailable Russian men. That's very unique. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I was, we were really lucky that no one else had thought of that idea for a title first. Well, is there a backstory to, especially to the emotionally unavailable Russian men? This trip was fueled in part by interest in Russian and Soviet culture. And a lot of that came from a series of Russian boyfriends who were not the most emotionally available boyfriends that I've had. Going through your book, and, and incidentally, we have both lived in the same countries, both Russia and China. Um, and I oh. think, yeah, uh, and I, I think that a lot of your 
experiences um, were a little bit more adventurous than mine. <laughs> and <laughs> y- your book kind of goes through uh, many of them. And I, I want to ask you about a couple of them. Um, and, sure. And really not to scare anybody, um, but I was uh, captured by your kidnapping scare in Turkmenistan. What happened? The way that you get around in Central Asia um, it's called a shared taxi, but what it really is kind of like private cars that you flag down on the side of the road and they'll pull over and you say where you're going. And if they're headed in the same direction, they'll tell you to get in. And if they're not, they'll sort of announce that by just like driving off without saying anything. Um, and so I had been doing that for about six weeks. Um, by the time I got to Turkmenistan and I never had any problem. It was about 8 PM, not that late, but dark. And I was trying to get to a hotel. I stuck out my hand to flag a taxi. And the first sort of red flag was that the car that eventually picked me up made a U-turn to get me. And that was unusual because shared taxis are normally only going to take you if they're already headed in the direction that you're going. These people clearly were not. Um, It was a driver and one other man in the front seat. So to me, I guess that sort of made me feel that that sort of canceled out the U-turn. I got in, I told them where I was going. And as soon as we started to drive, the second red flag was we stopped being able to communicate. Uh, I had spoken to them in Russian when I got in. And it was really, that was odd too, because I'm sure you know this when you're traveling or, or when you're in a foreign country, there's certain conversations that you tend to get down pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Restaurants, taxis, checking into a hotel. These are kind of like set scripts that don't deviate that much. You know, like in a taxi, someone might be like, where are you from? Uh, what do you do? Things like that. And so the fact that I couldn't understand anything they were saying was really disorienting. Um, we started driving and we drove past the hotel we were trying to get to. And that was another sort of like, uh oh, that's not good. But uh, the city I was in, Ashgabat, has a military parade, I think, like every week. It was really crazy. But even stranger, even though this is clearly something they do regularly, they mm. seem to shut down all the streets to practice for the military parade, even though it's like, well, didn't you do the same thing last week? So I was like, okay, maybe they're just sort of taking a more strategic route to get around a, you know, a detour. But then we kept driving and we started to get into more and more kind of like, it stopped feeling like a city, started feeling a little bit more suburban. And then, um, I saw them try to pull onto a highway that went straight out of the city and into the desert. And Turkmenistan is 80% desert, very uh, in the desert. There's nothing there. Yeah. So so that was really like, oh, no, something is wrong. I need to get out of this car. And it's so strange because whenever I tell this story, um, what I did next, it almost feels like something that, I wasn't doing it was like the survival instinct kicked in Mm -hmm. um, because I'm not sure I could have come up with this on my own, but um, I opened the door right before. So there was one last exit, but when we got on the highway, there was one last exit before we left the city. And that was an on-ramp from the airport. So there was like kind of a steady stream of traffic coming off that on-ramp. And I just opened the door as we got near it. 
and left my door open. And obviously that created a huge commotion because here's a car driving down the road, driving down a highway with um, one of the doors wide open. People were honking. And I think it drew enough attention that they uh, pulled over and I got out and ran. Thank, and so, thank, thank goodness. Yeah. I mean, and one thing I, I, I always want to stress after I tell that story is I think, I think women who want to travel alone, um, can sort of like, if you flip to the back of any guidebook, there's usually a section for women traveling alone and it can make it sound like you're walking into a really dangerous situation just by going somewhere by yourself. Mm-hmm. And I found that this was sort of like, I mean, this really was an aberration. Like, most of my trips, I really did not feel uncomfortable or unsafe, or really even particularly like I stood out for being alone. Um, I didn't really realize until I did this that, like, if you're walking down the street by yourself, no one looking at you is going to know that you're in the city alone or that you're on a longer trip by yourself. And so I certainly didn't feel like a target or really even unsafe except for this one incident. So I would hope that any woman who wants to travel alone um, will go for it and know that it is a lot safer, at least than I was expecting. Indeed. And, and I love traveling uh, alone. I mean, I have my husband now and uh, enjoy traveling with him. But before he became my real life and travel husband, I traveled alone myself. And I made some of the best friendships um, on my yeah. solo trips. You know, I think that's one of the the joys. In fact, I talk about one of my solo travel trips in my first uh, TEDx talk. But I want to turn to something that may have a a much uh, happier ending. And that (laughs) is the uh, about the bags of money you found in Uzbekistan. Did you take it and run? I mean, how did this how did this happen? (laughs) So, um, so in Uzbekistan, um, the government sets the official exchange rate for the currency, and they set it to be to make it seem uh, much more valuable than it really is. And so, as a result, the way that most people uh, change money is on the black market. And when I heard that, I think I was assuming it would be like some, you know, really secret, uh, covert place where you had to like do a special knock on the door to get in. But it turned out the black market in Uzbekistan is just like a standard section in any fruit market. And Hmm. so anytime I needed to change money, I would kind of like go to the fruit market and basically ask, where is the black market? And so the garbage bags of money come in because when you change money, the largest bill that they have in Uzbekistan is worth, I think, 50 U.S. cents, or at least it was at the time of my trip. So if you're changing like $100, $200, you're getting thousands of bills. And so the way that everyone kind of like keeps them together is they stuff them in these black plastic garbage bags and you just kind of like carry those around and pull out money whenever you need it. Um, So I did come by the garbage bags full of money, I guess semi-legitimately, but I was certainly definitely doing some running uh, sometimes when I was like, "Uh, I'm carrying, I don't know, like 
40,000, probably not that much, but like three or 4,000 bills on me. I don't feel very safe right now. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Another funny adventure that Audrey experienced was a night in an insane asylum themed bar. So I was staying in Kiev. I stayed in hostels a lot when I was traveling because it was just, it was a great way to meet people. And when you're traveling alone, as it sounds like you also experienced, um, Part, the best part can be some of the other travelers that you meet. And so this particular hostel was really close to this insane asylum themed bar. It was so odd. You walk in <laughs> and all of the walls were padded and the staff was dressed up like kind of like, you know, scary nurses from a horror film. They served the drinks in syringes that they would inject directly into your mouth. And yeah, I think wow. like for an American, <laughs> I, it would be really unusual to find something like that here. And it was there that I planned my trip to Chernobyl, which I can't I can't decide if that's fitting or really not fitting. You're listening to World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We're exploring life in the republics of the former Soviet Union in Audrey Murray's debut book, Open Mike Night in Moscow. With so many wacky and fun adventures in her memory bank, we asked about one of her favorites that she shared in her book. When I was in Uzbekistan, I was on an airplane and the person sitting beside me was like, hey, I'm going to my best friend's wedding tomorrow. You should come. And I was like, uh, first of all, are you allowed to invite me? And like, second of all, are you trying to murder me? Um, and so I was really torn, like whether or not I should go, whether it was safe, but I decided to go. And it was a huge Uzbek wedding with like 800 people there. And I was, I guess, an unexpected, I was in sort of, um, definitely one of the stops. Uh, on the tourist route through Uzbekistan, but mm-hmm. probably the smallest stop. And I don't think they were expecting an American to be at the wedding. So um, the MC introduced me, and I I had to come up in front of all 800 guests and do this special type of belly dance with the professional <laughs> belly dancers who had been hired. But it was so much fun, and I felt like really gave me some insight into Uzbek culture. I'm curious... What misperceptions did you have before traveling to this region? The two biggest preconceptions that I had that turned out to be wrong. The first was just that I think I sort of like thought of, you know, um, Russian culture as being a little cold. I think we all have like the stereotype of the serious Russian who never smiles. And in fact, it turned out to be the opposite. Um, Everywhere I went, people were so warm and welcoming and hospitable. And I think I was also worried that as an American, um, people would not be really happy to meet me because of, you know, the political situation between the two countries. But I never once experienced anything that felt like anti-American sentiment. I mean, people welcomed me into their homes. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I was really surprised by was I think... I had grown up hearing about the Soviet Union as, you know, I think any American who maybe had parents who lived through the Cold War, um, I sort of thought of it as a place that people were happy to no longer be part of. Um, definitely the uh, when the Soviet Union was dissolved, like I had always heard that that was really a moment of 
a welcome moment of freedom for everyone who lived in those countries. And when I got to the former Soviet Union, particularly Central Asia, I was surprised to find a lot of nostalgia for the Soviet Union. Um, because in a lot of cases, the standards of living had been higher in the Soviet period than they were now, again, especially in the more remote regions of Central Asia. So people spoke about it, you know, in more favorable terms than I was expecting. And that was really, that took me by surprise. Audrey also shared how an encounter with a stranger set the tone for her trip. I took a 10-day road trip through Tajikistan um, with this French traveler that I connected with because we both contacted the same tour guide. And his name was DNA. I write about him in my book. And he was really one of the best travelers I've ever met. I mean, I was so blown away by his ability to connect with people, even when he didn't necessarily like speak the same language. He spoke a little bit of Russian, but I remember we would be in guest houses and he would be talking to people about their lives and their jobs. And a lot of it was, again, through like pantomime and hand gestures. And he was also just so generous and so quick to sort of, I think when you're traveling in a place you don't know well, it can be easy to be suspicious of Mm -hmm. everyone. Mm -hmm. And I write about that in my book. You're sort of always like looking out for the scam, you know, asking yourself, is this person trying to have me? And really never worried about that. And that probably meant that he was occasionally taken advantage of. But I started to realize like, you know, most people are not trying to do that. And if you sort of approach everyone with more of an open mind and assuming the best of intentions, you can really have uh, more sort of like universal experiences. You can connect with people more. And so I really think I took that spirit into the rest of my trip. Open Mic Night in Moscow by Audrey Murray is on sale now. You can follow Audrey on social media and look for her links on this show page at worldfootprints.com. In this destination spotlight, Moab and southeastern Utah's Red Rocks and National Parks are among the highlights we explore with Diana Davidson at the Adventure Travel Expo. Utah is home to five national parks. Two of those national parks are near Moab. You can easily access both of those in Moab. It's a hip little town, lots of things to do, biking, hiking, floating the Colorado River. In San Juan County, that's known as the world's greatest outdoor museum. There are lots of things to do there as well, and it's about 100 miles south of Moab, so that can easily be accessed in one vacation. Probably the best thing to do is to fly to Salt Lake and rent a car. Moab is four hours from Salt Lake, and it's 100 miles from Moab to Bluff, which is in San Juan County, and it's it's a driving vacation. What is the area known for? Beautiful scenery. The area is known for just jaw-dropping scenery, and 
the scenery changes. You can drive 100 miles and things will look totally different. So we're known for these beautiful blue skies. We're known for these beautiful red rock formations. And at night, there's several areas in southeastern Utah that are official dark sky designations where you can go out and see the Milky Way and see things that you can't see in near a city. For somebody who may be physically challenged, how would they be able to enjoy these national parks? Well, the national parks have places, they accommodate disabled visitors and tourists and welcome them, so that can easily be done, as well as in other areas in the southeastern part of Utah as well. Can you tell me what you love most about the uh, the Canyonlands? My favorite spot in all of this is Moki, Dugway, and Muley Point and Goosenecks of the San Juan. That's in San Juan County. Not a lot of people know about that, so I should probably keep that a secret. <laughs> The Camino de Santiago draws the faithful, those searching for their life's purpose, and the curious to northern Spain, Portugal, and France to explore the life and times of St. James. Adventurous Richard Keltner has taken this popular pilgrimage many, many times, and he shares his advice to help you get the most from this moving experience. The interesting thing about the Camino de Santiago is that it doesn't really have a a specific starting point. It has a specific ending point, which is Santiago de Compostela uh, on the far west side of Spain in the upper northwest corner of Spain. That's the ending point. That's the city that houses the Cathedral of St. James where the relics of St. James are interred. Uh, The beginning point, because this is an ancient pilgrimage, uh, is all over Europe. Uh, people in the Middle Ages walked from Paris, they walked from London, they walked from Moscow, they walked from uh, all, all over. Uh, and so if you think of it as, as kind of a funnel, hmm. uh, the funnel, the, the small end of the funnel, the very end of the funnel, of course, is Santiago. But there's a small uh, village in the mountains of the Pyrenees called St. Jean Pied-de-Port, which was a collecting point for all those different trails that came down from Europe and ended up at St. Jean Pied-de-Port for the last 500 miles to Santiago. So when most people think of the way or the Camino de Santiago, they visualize that 500 miles from St. Jean Pied-de-Port in France to Santiago. Mm-hmm. And I understand you have walked uh, many portions of the, 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 the trail itself of the uh, Camino de Santiago. Have you done the entire stretch of the, the pilgrim, pilgrimage? I've done, I've done the final 500 miles from St. John Pied-de-Port to Santiago four times. I've also walked uh, from Le Puy in France. Uh, I've walked from uh, Porto in Portugal uh, to Santiago. So 
I've walked the Portuguese, the Lapui, uh, and the Camino de Santiago, which most people think of the French route from St. John Pied-de-Port. Richard told us that there are many reasons beyond spiritual inspiration that people choose to embark on a long pilgrimage. There are often many reasons to walk a pilgrimage. Uh, one can be religious, one can be enlightenment, one can be cultural, uh, one can be just fitness, uh, to enjoy the process of walking. Uh, another one can be for camaraderie. Uh, you want to meet new people or you want to spend time with someone who's important with, to you. So you walk with that person. It gives you an opportunity to connect. So there are a lot of reasons to walk uh, any long-distance trail, mm-hmm. including this pilgrimage. And so you've you've walked it several times. I know there are a lot of uh, interesting stories you have uh, you've acquired throughout uh, your different walks and the people that you've met. Are there uh, what are some of the most memorable uh, experiences you've had during these journeys? Well, that's a that's a great question. That's a tremendous question, and and to try to pick you know one or two great memories. Is somewhat difficult, but um, probably for me, the the thing that stays with me the longest are the people that you meet and their stories. And uh, when you walk with people from different countries, and you find out that they have the same the same issues and concerns that we do, and it it is enlightening. Mm-hmm. You also meet people who tell you their life stories in one hour. Uh, it's a concept I call the Camino Confessional, <laughs> where where uh, you feel comfortable talking to people that you barely know about your most in, intimate uh, details of your life, because it's probable that you won't ever see them again. Mm-hmm. About the things we need to plan for and know before embarking on the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage. There is no fee for walking the Camino. In fact, as a pilgrim, uh, when you receive your pilgrim passport, which is easy to obtain, when you obtain your pilgrim passport, uh, that provides you with the opportunity to stay in the uh, hostels if, in the, on the Camino. They're called albergues. Uh, the hostels that are provided specifically for pilgrims. And the cost per night is nominal. It's 12 to $15 a night. The piece of advice that I guess I would offer is that even though it's not the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail or, or anything like that, it is a physical endeavor. I mean, you are going to walk if you walk the entire way from Sant- from St. Jean Pied de Port to Santiago. It's 500 miles. And you're going to walk 500 miles. Well, if you if you've never walked before, if you've never walked long distances, if you've never walked 10 miles without stopping, well, not without stopping, but in one day, you should do that. Uh, you should prepare by making sure that you have proper footwear. But any long distance hike is about two things primarily: food and feet. You need to be able to take care of your feet. If you don't prepare, if you don't wear the proper footwear, if you don't walk in that footwear before you go, you're going to get horrible blisters. And if you get horrible blisters, you're going to have a terrible time. 
-hmm. So you need to prepare. If you have special dietary needs, you need to research that to make sure that if you're gluten, you know, if you're allergic to gluten, you need to consider how you're going to survive in a country that is gluten-centric. Spain loves their bread. And they have gluten in most of the food. But, you know, food and feet. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you specifically carry in uh, your backpack? I'm assuming you have some form of knapsack with you on this trail. If you didn't want to carry a backpack on the Camino, there's a, a company who makes a great living transporting pilgrims' luggage from albergue to albergue. Uh, you wouldn't have to carry a pack at all. You could just have your your clothes shipped forward. It costs about seven dollars a day to do that. Uh, ear earplugs are essential. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the earplugs uh, when you sleep in a communal uh, albergue in a in a hostel ah. <laughs> uh, with 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 thirty of your closest friends uh, in bunk beds that are reasonably close together, uh, snoring is <laughs> ubiquitous. Richard said that silicon earplugs that mold to your ears are best. If you want more information about the Camino de Santiago or on Richard Keltner, visit the links on this show page at worldfootprints.com. Listening to World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, singer-songwriter Kendall Gary has taken her opera training to the world of country music, but building cross-cultural bridges is nothing new for her. Having spent the first nine years of her life as a world traveler, she started singing at the age of four with the help of an opera singer. Now this Texan is shaking up the country music world, bringing her unique style to audiences at home and abroad. Celebrity veterinarian and television host Dr. Jeff Werber has made it his mission to strengthen the ties that bind pets to their human parents. This Emmy Award-winning host of Petcetera on Animal Planet and Lassie's Pet Fed on PBS, Dr. Jeff offers some sage advice on traveling stress-free with our furry companions. Plus, if you want to travel deeper and uncover hidden gems like the Camino de Santiago, meet people like Audrey Murray, or explore some interesting places like Moab in southeastern Utah, visit us at worldfootprints.com. Singer-songwriter Kendall Gary has taken her opera training to the world of country music. Having spent the first nine years of her life as a world traveler, she started singing at the age of four with the help of an opera singer. Now this Texan is shaking up the country music world, bringing her unique style to audiences at home and abroad. What's a nice girl from Texas doing in Nashville these days? Um, I actually go to school in Nashville, Tennessee. I go to Belmont University. Currently, I'm home 
in Texas. So I'm just enjoying being home right now. <laughs> Good deal. And, you know, I, I heard, uh, I read that during the early parts of your life, you spent a lot of time traveling around the world. And how did you... Country music may not be that popular in other countries, so how did you come to um, really gravitate towards country music after being introduced to other genres? Well, my um, parents have always loved country western music, and um, my mom's originally from Texas, so she always had us listening to like country music and also like classical music, so but uh country music was always like the roots that she had and then also my dad's father loves country music so he always like impressed that on all of us that country music that it was like so great and timeless Mm -hmm. and speaking of classical music I know you were classically trained Um, Mm -hmm. was it was a transition from opera to country music challenging or complimentary how did that work for you I was so young when I started opera singing or like classically trained. Um, So it wasn't that much of a transition in the sense where by the time I decided to do like more pop than country music, I was like uh, already in that transition and away from that kind of training. And uh, I mean, it was kind of a process now that I think about it, but um, it wasn't horribly or it wasn't a horrible process. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and you've continued a lot of your, your traveling. You've um, performed on stages across this country, the United States, and, and across mm-hmm. the world. And actually, my husband and I were just in Dallas. And, uh, oh, really? Yeah, we did a tour of the AT&T Stadium, the Cowboy Stadium. And Oh, that's awesome. It it. My gosh, I mean, I was overwhelmed by that stadium. It is so huge and intimidating. What has it been like for you performing on a stage like that? It was a lot of fun. Um, it wasn't full or like it didn't have a lot of people in the stadium at the time, but it was definitely a fun experience when I did perform there. Uh, I feel like if it was full, it would have just been like amazing. Kendall talked about the impact that living in a different country has had on her life. The fact that I've been able and I've been fortunate enough to live and travel the world has been awesome. Uh, People don't realize how different countries are from each other. You know, they see what's on the internet and they see like what they want to see, but actually living in different countries and having to uh, adapt to different cultures and the way you know they live, it's really eye like eye opening and it's a it's a beautiful experience I think and being able to experience that at, at a young age that I was mm-hmm. is really awesome and I think that um, that really helps form the person I am today. When you're traveling, I'm just going to do a couple of quick fire questions before we go. Mm-hmm. What's in yeah. your travel bag? What are the things that you cannot travel without? Uh, I always have to have my pillow. I have to have my pink pillow <laughs> I travel with. And then, hmm, what do I always have to travel with? I travel so much, you would think I would like know this, but I don't know. Like I have to have my certain like 
toiletries and stuff, which I think is essential for everybody. But sure. I like to be able to go wherever I'm going and, you know, feel at home, at least at where I'm staying, mm-hmm. and then experience what's around me. But I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to make, I'll have to check that out next time and be like, what's in every single travel bag that I pack? <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a common question that we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about because I don't know if I could answer that for myself other than, you know, a yeah. couple of things like my camera. Uh, so mm-hmm, right. when you're not traveling um, for performances, um, but for your own enjoyment, where do you go and what do you do? Um, lately, since we've moved back to the U.S., uh, we haven't done like a whole bunch of traveling. I think my parents were kind of traveled out and um so we didn't really do a lot of traveling except for when my father um had a job down in the Cayman Islands and so we go down there and visit him but usually on our vacations we you know we kind of just relax and explore the city like just like us kind Mm -hmm. of our family Mm -hmm. we're not really we're kind of more homebody at least um some of my family is uh, we're kind of more homebody, so we don't, we're not the family that's always going, going, going and having to travel and go on different tours all the time, wherever we're going. Right. So I think that's, I love, I love the way we travel just because it's not stressful or exhausting. <laughs> right. But, but and, we definitely have gone to Cayman for sure. That's a beautiful country. <laughs> oh, indeed. Indeed. Do you scuba dive by any chance? You, I'm sorry? Do you scuba dive? Are you a water baby or? Um, actually, my father is like a fish, and my mother is from the desert. So I took after my mom, and um, <laughs> I love the water, but I like looking at it and like being by the water and stuff. But I'm not a huge ocean person. I like to know what's underneath me. So that's why I love the Cayman Islands so much because <laughs> the water's so beautiful and clear. So I'm like good to go, but I'm not a huge water person. <laughs> Even though my my sign is water. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So I'm the complete opposite. <laughs> uh, and I want to I want to give you um, a, a chance to talk about your um, new release that's coming out soon. And I understand mm-hmm. that a couple of your songs. I'm I'm not sure if Barefoot Country Mile actually will be on your new um, CD, but I I know that Barefoot country mile is kind of like a love song to texas um but mm-hmm. what does your new um what can we expect and, and enjoy from your forthcoming cd well barefoot country mile will be on my upcoming album it's coming okay. out in september and um all the songs that i've released um this past year will be on my new album but my upcoming song road trip will be on there and uh that's a fun song to listen to in the car i think i guess it has to relate to traveling so that's fun (laughs) and um yeah i'm really excited for like to share this um and finally have it out but yeah it's gonna be awesome i Uh, think (laughs) well and and i would hope you would think but i i i've listened to a couple of your tracks and they're wonderful and so For the latest on Kendall's music and concert schedule, visit kendallgary.com. We'll have a link on the show page at worldfootprints.com. In this destination spotlight, 
Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley embraces its industrial legacy while recreating itself as a food and wine hub, explains Alicia Quinn of Discover Lehigh Valley. Lehigh Valley is located an hour north of Philadelphia or three hours north of Washington, D.C. Um, we're home to the uh, Martin Guitar Factory, Crayola Crowns. Um, we have an Iron Pigs baseball team, uh, Phantoms hockey team, and the new National Museum of Industrial History, downtown Allentown. Uh, the Smithsonian is going to be exhibiting uh, several artifacts and uh, exhibits as part of that exhibition. Uh, we have outdoor recreational opportunities, hiking, biking, paintball. We've got a world-renowned food uh, market coming onto stream with uh, Bobby V and Emerald. We've got several other factory tours. Crayola Crowns are manufactured in one of our downtowns, Easton, Pennsylvania. So it's a great destination to come out, whether you're families or guys and girls looking to get away with some friends. Uh, wine trail, ale trail, some new distilleries. Is there anything that distinguishes you guys other than, you know, the things that you mentioned, uh, any historical points? Yeah, uh, we are home to the Bethlehem steel industry. So, you know, really world-class manufacturer. Uh, it's the largest brown, largest private brownfield left in the United States, and it's been repurposed into public space. So it's a great way to connect history with the present and arts and music. Um, you know, it's a, a great hub for local artistry, and whether you're a performer or an entertainer, um, it's kind of really unique to who we are, and that's going to be a big part of this Industrial Revolution Museum, which is why they chose to bring that to Lehigh Valley. The, Tell us about some of the, the wineries and, and what people would enjoy. Uh, we have a Lehigh Valley Wine Trail that features nine wineries throughout um, Lehigh and Northampton counties. Uh, the Chamborson grape is the most popular grape that is produced in our area. Uh, they'll do various food and wine pairings at their you know, different wineries throughout the, the year. Um, March is a big time where you can buy a passport that takes you to all of the wineries over the course of the month of March. And they bring in some different chefs to really, you know, take off the or to show off their wines and the grapes that they harvest. Um, we've got some great bed and breakfasts nearby, though, so it's convenient to you know, grab a glass of wine with some friends and then stay overnight at one of our bed and breakfasts. Dr. Jeff Werber has made it his mission to strengthen the ties that bind pets to their human parents. Dr. Jeff takes care of the pets of some of Hollywood's best-known celebrities and is a celebrity in his own right. The Emmy Award-winning host of Petcetera on Animal Planet and Lassie's Pet Vet on PBS, Dr. Jeff offers some sage advice on traveling stress-free with our furry companions. I was surprised to learn that 30 million plus people actually travel with their pets each year. And, and I know that um, Ian and I are included in that statistic. <laughs> um, but I'm just curious, because of the different modes of traveling, um, plane, train, uh, automobile, are there different considerations for each mode of traveling when traveling with your pet? Well, first of all, um, the, it's, it's amazing that how many people now, and it, it's, I think the, the numbers are growing in, like, insanely, are truly, truly considering their pets as part of the family. 
And it used to be the old-fashioned way. You were leaving town. You put your, your pet in a kennel, a regular old kennel, so they sat in a cage for two weeks, and that was it. Now, interestingly, people will not even travel if they can't take their pets with them or stay at a hotel if they can't take their pets with them. And they are now planning their travel around their pets, which to me is, is fantastic. <laughs> so I'm glad that you guys also do the same. Um, so uh, you know, as far as, as, far as you know, wh- how you're going to travel, yes, there are a lot of different considerations um, because, you know, for example, when it comes to cars, how is your pet going to be restrained? Uh, do you let them hang your head out the window? What do you take with you? Um, what do, are you to expect on the other end of the trip? I always say, you know, it's, it's very important to make sure that the place you're going to stay is pet friendly and not, not just pet friendly, but think about weights. You know, oftentimes I've heard stories, people show up at a hotel with their 80 pound German shepherd and they go, Oh, um, no, we are pet friendly, but there's a 30 pound weight limit. It's like, Oh, now you tell me. <laughs> and, um, and, and how about family? <laughs> I always say the best way to never be invited back is to bring your pet along with you unplanned. As far as the, the cars, uh, seat belts or some sort of vehicle pet harness or mm-hmm. car seat, they actually make car seats now for pets, and they come with harnesses that attach directly to a seat belt. And whatever you do, don't hook any kind of restraint up to a collar, because heaven forbid if there's an accident, that pet goes flying and is hooked up to the, the restraint by, by its collar, um, it can have a choking hazard. Mm-hmm. Cats must be restrained. Same, uh, but it's very hard to get a cat in a, in, a, in a little harness. So I would say for cats, in a really you know well uh, restrained cat, pet carrier that you can then attach the carrier through a, a seat belt. Now, uh, wh- some pets get motion sickness, so be careful and you know always talk to your veterinarian. There's some great solutions that can help pets against motion sickness as well. Right now, we actually have a, a cat. His name is Irwin, and um, he's very uncooperative when we put him in his carrier. And we actually have a soft carrier for him because we could not get him into his um, his the hard plastic carrier. He's just very very uncooperative. Because it's soft, that's not one that that can actually be restrained. And and I hate to say that we have violated one of your rules, and that is to allow the cat to travel outside of the carrier. He sits on my lap when we're driving home to Michigan. It's a 10-hour drive from here to from the D.C. area to Michigan. He doesn't move around a lot except to maybe eat or drink or use his litter box which we keep open um but it is is that acceptable is that okay well you know it all really depends on on what's going to work for you i mean if it, if it does now there are what you could do is take a regular old seat belt put the carrier on the seat and then pass the seat belt through the you know the shoulder strap and mm-hmm. you can shorten the shoulder strap by just putting a knot in it so it at least gives some security. The fact that it's in a soft carrier doesn't bother me at all because actually, again, if, if there is, heaven forbid, an accident and he goes flying against the wall of the carrier, I think he'd rather be flying against the wall of a soft carrier than a hard carrier. Right. So, uh, in fact, he told me that. He said he'd much rather be in a, in a soft carrier. <laughs> okay. Um, but but, uh, but, but it, it wouldn't be advisable. But, yes, many people do it. The only, what you don't want to do is have the cat on your lap if you're driving. Because right. Because it's going to distract your attention. Heaven forbid the cat jumps off and ends up at your feet. And then something, you have to slam on your brakes in front of you, but you're afraid to because you're afraid to, you know, squish the cat. So it's, uh, 
you know, again, when it comes to times like this, we're thinking of all these, these the once in a million scenarios. Mm-hmm. But you got it. You got to mention it. You're listening to World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We're speaking with celebrity pet vet Dr. Jeff Werber about traveling with pets and the ties that bind us to them. There are risk factors for certain breeds of dogs. Um, in the airplane, you know, the larger breeds uh, who travel in the cargo. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the respiratory considerations that pet owners should be aware of? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, I'll just know that, that airlines are relaxing their regulations quite a bit when it comes to animals in the cabin. Uh, it used to be one or two per cabin. Now it's, it, I mean, I, someone was telling me other on a plane, there were five animals on board. Um, I think they're because of service animals and, and other reasons uh, there, we seem to see more animals. In fact, I've have, have, in my travels have met quite a few pets that now are my patients. So I love mm-hmm. traveling on plane because it's a, it's a great marketing technique. <laughs> but um, as far as the uh, policies, yes, um, it depends on weather conditions, um, in cargo uh, especially, um, like, for example, the short-nosed dogs, the snub-nosed dogs, the, the pugs, the Frenchies, the Boston Terriers, the Pekingese, um, and even the, many of the pit bulls. Uh, they won't allow traveling uh, in certain temperatures because of that. And even some of the long, very long nose breeds, like a collie, have some respiratory considerations. So it's very important to plan ahead. And that's when, when it comes to any kind of travel, as I said, it's so important to plan ahead in every regard. Make sure uh, that the airline uh, will allow this pet, your pet to travel in cabin if it's small enough and can fit in a carrier under the seat in front of you, or if you have a service dog, a licensed service dog then uh, they, they can actually sit with you on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as cargo, uh, make sure your pet is, is accustomed to being in that carrier. Make sure your pet has had a chance to relieve himself um, before the travel. Uh, in, many, many airports now actually have indoor areas for pets um, that they can sort of hang out, do their thing, if you know what I mean, before getting on the plane. And uh, that's, uh, that's really, really cool. I, I see it in most major airports now have pet areas. What are some of the most egregious travel experiences you have witnessed as a veterinarian? Not being prepared, as I said, getting, showing up someplace and finding out you can't keep your pet. I mean, there's some basics that, you, that of course, you want to take with you at all times. Um, a first aid kit, medical records, any medication your pet may be on. Certainly check with the airlines, a health certificate or at least proof of vaccine. Make sure your pet has an ID tag, microchipped, uh, a picture of your pet, heaven forbid your pet should be lost in a, far, in a strange place. Uh, you want to be able to post some pictures and, and always have a, a handy number of your veterinarian or an animal poison control. And if you're heading to a certain destination, make sure you have at least a number handy of their local emergency clinic or veterinary hospital and a, a, poison, a pet poison a hotline. One of my uh, very good friends is they were moving uh, from California to, to uh, Florida, West Palm Beach. Um, you know, they were so nervous about traveling with their golden retriever, who was in a fairly large container, a large crate. And, and you know, they were happy to see that it was on the tarmac and they were going to put it in last, which means it would come out, he would come out first. All of a sudden, they hear a door close below them, and then they, you know, the pilot gets on, and the plane starts backing out of the gate, and sitting on the tarmac is their dog. Oh. <laughs> he gets up, he's screaming, right, my dog, my dog. And finally, they stop the plane, and they... And they, they opened up and put the dog in. If you're, you have a large breed that needs to go into cargo, 
do like be crazy. I mean, literally, to talk to the uh, the gate attendant, talk talk to the, stu- the, the the flight attendant. Make sure they know, double check, triple check that the the, the cargo area is going to be pressure controlled, is going to be temperature controlled. They are supposed to be, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know, literally thousands of pets travel every day in in cargo, uh, being shipped by breeders, uh, by shelters across the country. Um, and, uh, they, and they do fine. Of course, we are going to hear of the horror stories. Um, and uh, so, fortunately, we haven't had many pets can get lost. Um, I've heard of stories where pets do get lost far away, and they somehow make their way home. But that's why that microchip and ID tag are so essential to have with your pet at all times. Even for cats, would you say? Definitely. I have to tell you, I have, to, I, I have six. Don't tell anybody. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and one of my magnificent, he was a snowshoe marble bangle. And he got out, and he was, not only was he magnificent, he was so friendly, he was gone for five days, and I was in such a panic. And because my cats are all indoors, I didn't even have a collar on him. Mm-hmm. And, and sure enough, five days later, my, one of my dogs, I have a lot of those too, uh, is going nuts outside, and I look out the window, and there's Zoolander. He just came back. And with that frightening experience i have all my uh, cats now have our microchip and all wear id tags wow you never know here in california with earthquakes with things that can happen so uh i i don't want to take any chances right plain and safe sure now what about people who travel with animals other than cats and dogs say bunny rabbits are there different considerations for the smaller uh more in, in some case more exotic animals like ferrets um, well, Ferris, you want to make sure, first of all, that they're going to be legal in the states that you're going. Right. <laughs> because there are some, there are some rules. Uh, for example, in California, ferrets are, 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 are illegal. Um, and as far as small breeds, again, uh, check with the airlines. The most important thing, is, as I said in preparation, is checking with the airlines to make sure they are comfortable and will, will allow you to travel with your pet. A bunny, for example, I would treat as a cat. Um, and that is used to try to get them on board with you easily, clearly will fit under the seat in a soft bag and just make the appropriate um, re- you know, reservations. What you don't want to do is have your, your pet in a, a carrier that also can look like a shoulder bag and try to just walk on. Because for, for one thing, um, the, it'll, it'll work a lot. It will. But, you know, always think about the guy who's his first day on the job, mm-hmm. doing everything by the book. So you are about to put your bags through the belt, right, for, for, the, for the, the, the um, security. And you say, no, 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 I have, a, I have a live pet in there. Well, I need to see your papers. Oh, my God, I've traveled this time. They never asked me for my papers. I'm sure it's fine. Well, this guy, he's not letting anything go because he doesn't want to make a mistake on his first day on the job. So the shortcuts are only going to bite you in the bind. For more about Dr. Jeff's work, visit drjeff.com. Look for a link on this show page at worldfootprints.com. received Audrey Murray's book, Open Mic in Moscow, I was so intrigued, having lived 
in St. Petersburg and us having visited Moscow recently, I was curious about her experience uh, during a developing time, I suppose, for uh, the former USSR. And I love some of the stories, like the insane asylum bar, which was frightening, (laughs) but also very comical. I mean, I would have loved to have visited a bar like that. But I think the more important thing she did was really change people's perceptions about how people from the former Eastern Bloc lived, how they reacted to Westerners. She experienced a lot of graciousness during her her time there. And I like the fact that she mentioned how some of her preconceived notions about this area and the people, the stoicism, kind of went away as she discovered that they had a real sense of humor about them, that they were welcoming. She found the joy in their lives despite what we see and what we often hear in the press. So that was refreshing uh, to see that transformation for her at a personal level. And you know, during the time I was there, life itself was very, very hard and it continues to be hard for many people um, in Russia and uh, the former Soviet countries. But the the thing that has always impressed me uh, most about traveling to countries like like Russia and uh, other developing countries is how generous um, the people are, the people who have very little to offer. They offer tremendous friendship and uh, generosity and just graciousness. And that has always impacted me uh, incredibly. And I think Richard Keltner talked about the generosity of people he met along the Camino de Santiago, Um, people, like-minded people who were searching for something or just wanted a great adventure or wanted to challenge themselves on these long treks. And you and I, having done a heritage trail in Dominica, really know how challenging physically and emotionally challenging that type of walk is. Richard gave a lot of sage advice. uh, And uh, one of the things that uh, struck me was he talked about uh, the Camino de Santiago as the Camino confessional, connecting (laughs) with people uh, learning about them and how people just open up. And that's generally been our experience whenever we've we've traveled and we've met people that the guard comes down and uh, you learn more, perhaps more than you want to know about people. Kendall Gary, very interesting uh, person uh, in her own right, having lived the first nine years of her life abroad, she really knows what it's like to build bridges to different cultures. And for her to bring an international life experience to the world of country music, I think, is refreshing. And, you know, she just demonstrated, again, music is a universal language. Um, And I was really impressed with her operatic training. And I think it was, you know, it's like strengthening your your core um, for your vocal cords, for your diaphragm. And so I think that operatic training, that uh, classical training is really going to aid her as she continues to build her career. And I'm really excited to see where this young girl um, takes her, you know, where she goes. And speaking of going, um, Erwin made our broadcast again. As he always does. (laughs) And, um, you know, I I loved uh, Dr. Jeff's advice on traveling with pets. And he even gave us um, information and, and ideas on how to better travel with um, such a co- uncooperative little creature that we have here. 
Well, the next time we take a car trip, uh, uh, he may have to have a slightly different arrangement because he's caused havoc before, and thankfully, we've survived all of his antics <laughs> and lived to tell about it. And, and so has he. As we close, we love to leave you with the words of writer Judith Thurman. Every dreamer knows that it is entirely possible to be homesick for a place you've never been to perhaps more homesick than for familiar ground. We have been honored to share this last hour with you, and we thank you for spending this time with us. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next adventure with you on World Footprints. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn and live it at worldfootprints.com